From the Twin Cities PBS Archives, a conversation with Mark Dayton, originally broadcast in 1991. As a high school hockey player, he was an average athlete, but excelled through intensity and hard work. He says being born into a life of wealth and privilege has been both a blessing and a curse in his pursuit of political office. With us on Portrait, State Auditor Mark Dayton. What are your political goals now, Mark? Where, where are you in your political career? Well, I just got elected to be State Auditor, so my goal for the foreseeable future is to be the best State Auditor I can possibly be. Mm -hmm. I'm just very happy to have been elected to have a chance to return to public service, which is my career, and to learn as much as I can, make the best contribution I can to the, the future of this state. Do you, I mean, are you looking ahead, though? I mean, are you thinking about the future? You must be, I would assume. Oh, I think about it from time to time, but I, I've gotten more philosophical in my old age now, and I guess I believe that if you look too far down the road, you trip over the pebbles that are at your feet. So I, I really am just focused on doing this job. I have a great deal to learn. There's some very, very challenging issues facing the state of Minnesota that the state auditor is directly involved in, like mm -hmm. how, do you, how do we make government more efficient, more cost-effective? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the critical issue of the 90s for those of us like myself who believe in government is going to be uh, how is government literally going to survive? How is it going to respond to ever-increasing human needs with ever more limited tax resources? And the uh, auditor, by virtue of the oversight function over the $10 billion a year that are spent by cities and counties, school districts, townships, really is, is, plays a critical role in, in trying to shape mm -hmm. the responsiveness of government services. So I'm, I'm just, I have a very full plate right now, and I'm just happy to be state auditor and determined to do the best possible job and let the future take care of itself. What are the lessons that you think you still have to learn in terms of a uh, political life? Um... Oh, I think life's a lifelong learning process. I mean, I expect I'll be learning political lessons throughout the rest of my life. I think uh, this job gives me an opportunity to demonstrate to Minnesotans what I can do, the sincerity of my commitment. I spent the last four years out of public life, really uh, reworking a lot of my own personal issues. I went through treatment for alcoholism in January of 1987, so I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I've spent the last couple of years really reworking the, the emotional foundation of my life and, and really working on my own spiritual growth and development, as well as broadening myself, going to the Soviet Union a couple of times, spending a year as a special student at United Theological Seminary. And I, I, this is a chance for me to, to, to mm -hmm. put what I've learned together and to translate that into, into political action and social action and uh, see how well I can do mm -hmm. uh, with the challenges that will be presented to me. Mm -hmm. In terms of um, you, what you just voiced about your concerns about state government, um, whether or not there can be in government at all, I mean, if we're going to even have the resources, is it just a matter of really fine-tuning it down so it runs at optimal efficiency? Or isn't there a question somewhere along the line of will, that if you want to do something, you have to commit resources to it, that it's not just a question of increasing and increasing efficiency? Oh, I think absolutely. If you want to make a commitment to addressing a social problem, you have to commit the resources to do so. But we have a great deal of resources that are committed to our social problems these days, and I think that Do we have sufficient our, resources, you think? In some, in some way areas we do, in other areas we don't. But I, I think that if we're going to have the, the political support of the people of the state of Minnesota or the country, 
We're going to have to demonstrate that government can be accountable, that it can use the resources which it does have wisely and effectively. And people see millions of dollars going to the state budget, billions of dollars going to the federal budget. I mean, the numbers become so enormous that people really have lost their faith and trust in government and its ability, one, to solve the problems, but also to, to spend those enormous amounts of money in, in efficient and cost-effective ways. And I think we have a crisis of confidence in this country toward government, particularly as it gets bigger and farther removed from people. And if, if we're going to be able to spend money at all to address problems, it can only be with the, 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 the consent and the support of our citizens. Mm -hmm. That's what those of us in government uh, are charged with, and that's what we're going to have to address uh, in the decade ahead. Is there really much waste in government? Well, I'm not one of those who believes that there's this, this vast repository of waste, that there's this, this huge bulge of fat that can just be excised. On the other hand, I think that government at all levels, just by, again, the virtue of size, can can find ways to operate more efficiently, more cost-effectively. Certainly there are programs that have perhaps outserved their usefulness who uh, remain because uh, of some vested interest in them or because uh, they have a certain constituency. I think the challenge for government is to, is to let go of what isn't working as effectively as possible or what may, may be outmoded and shift those resources forward to address the new problems or to address old problems in new and more creative ways. And uh, I've worked long enough now in government to, to see both the, the encrustation in certain respects that occurs, as well as to see government's ability to respond affirmatively. And I think the challenge is to, to keep moving government ahead. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about your own political awakening as a, as a young man when you went off to uh, college? How that happened and what kinds of things began to impact upon you to change the way you looked at the world or opened up the way you looked at the world? Well, I grew up in a relatively sheltered environment. Grew up in Long Lake, Minnesota, a member of a wealthy family. Went to a private uh, country day school, Blake School in Hopkins. My view of the world was pretty limited. Then I went to college, spent the first two years playing hockey and working in pre-med courses. And then, then the, the social upheaval of the late 60s, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, everything really broke into my consciousness for the first time in 1967-1968. I remember the summer of 68 I just returned from college and was sitting in the basement of my parents home when suddenly my political hero Robert Kennedy was assassinated right before my eyes. And there was something about his, his death that really awakened something inside of me and, and, and gave me for the first time a real political conscience and a sense that, that I needed to, to take action. And the, as a result, I, I withdrew all my applications from medical school. I got involved uh, in the anti-war movement, earned the distinction of being the only Minnesotan on the Nixon's enemies list uh, through my political activity. And then I became aware, really for the first time, of the enormous contrast between the, the, the extreme good fortune that I had had and all that I'd been given, the way I was brought up, and the kind of poverty I saw when I became a teacher in a ghetto school in New York City, uh, living and working with uh, first summer with a welfare family in a public housing project in New York City. You lived so, in, a, in, a, in a housing project? I lived uh, the first summer as part of this teacher training program mm -hmm. with a welfare family in a public housing project on the Lower East Side of New York City. Mm -hmm. Shared a room, in fact, shared a cot with their 10-year-old son and saw the enormous contrast between what I'd been so fortunate to have growing up and what this family had. And that really seared my, my conscience and my consciousness and in some ways took the, the kind of Christian values that I had been brought up with 
and that I'd learned from my family and, and said to me, now how do I translate those values into the kind of social action that I think circumstances uh, call for? Mm -hmm. Did that put you in much conflict with your own family? For a time it did. Uh, I disagreed uh, over the war. I was active in my op opposition to the Vietnam War. Although I think my parents and my family understood that my values were uh, their values. What about the, the, the discrepancy between the, the rich and the poor in this country? When, did that, when you spent a, part of a summer living in the projects in New York and came back with those experiences, I mean, were there any internal conflicts that developed? Between oh, you absolutely. I had some very heated discussions with my father, with other members of my family, with friends of family about various issues where I had taken a stand where I was in disagreement. I think that was an important part of my own individuation process of my own psychological development as well as my own political development and mm -hmm. I still have those disagreements. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, a big part of politics is that the, the test and the challenge of, of being willing to take stands on principle, stand up for what you believe in, may not be always right. I'm reminded daily of my own fallibility, but I do believe in the necessity of taking those stands based on principle and I had some of my first opportunities to do so in those years of my early 20s. Mm -hmm. Was there much estrangement that developed uh, over those conflicts within your family, or were they just sort of limited to the dining room or the kitchen table? Uh, no, we certainly had our, our period of, of estrangement, of disagreement, a period where I really broke away from my family and went my own way, felt that my political stand was such that I, I needed to be separate, and I needed that time to be separate. I needed the opportunity to be on the streets of New York City and then in the south end of Boston to, to really walk those streets in blue jeans and, and not have anybody know who I was or if it did, mm -hmm. wouldn't matter anyway. Mm -hmm. And to just to begin to establish my own identity as a person as well as my own political values. What, what was it like doing that work in New York? You were a teacher in the New York City schools and then you were working with uh, youth in Boston for a while? Over, this was over about a two or three year period? Well, actually over about a five year period. Five I taught for two years in a ghetto school on the Lower East Side of New York City. And then I worked for a little over three years for a social service agency in the South End, Roxbury area of Boston. Mm -hmm. First year as a street worker and a counselor at a runaway house. Mm -hmm. and it was tough work. I always said the teaching was the toughest job I ever had. Anyone who develops, I always said the teaching was the toughest job I ever had. Mm -hmm. Anyone who devotes his or her life to teaching has my respect and admiration. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, two kids who were shot and killed the first year I was teaching, uh, part of gangs, killed by rival gangs, uh, walking those streets at night. I mean, I was scared some of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember being in the back alley with one uh, young man who I, I knew had a gun on him. I mm -hmm. uh, remember walking in when I was a street counselor in Boston behind a school where a local street gang had one of the girls that was staying at the runaway house and going back there to retrieve her from, from their clutches. Mm -hmm. But it taught me a lot about life. I mean, those kids taught me more about life than anything I ever learned at Yale University. I mean, they taught me about the real world and how tough it can be out there and, and how life and death it can be for kids who don't have the kind of opportunities that I had. And it did sear my conscience and my consciousness in very profound ways, ways that I think, at least I hope, have uh, persisted even to this day. Why did you leave the streets? Why did you leave New York and teaching and social work in Boston? I came to see the, the role of government 
it's really it's really the kind of experience that drove me to government because I saw that these casualties of society, if they were really going to get the help that they needed, much of the the resources came from government. And this was in the early 70s when there was a sense that the government could really be an important part of the solution to the problems in this society, that government could really be involved in in equalizing opportunity. And I got interested in government, was able to get a job working for then Senator Walter F. Mondale. Went to work for him in Washington. Uh, specialized in some areas of education, children and youth, small business. And saw firsthand, well, somebody like him who has high deals, high commitment to public service that could be effective through government on behalf of people. Did you feel any, uh, did you were missing anything in terms of your experience by not being able to be out on the front line in the trenches? I think I felt at that point that I could ultimately be more effective on behalf of the causes I believed in if I worked through government, if I became involved at that level, served in some way as a bridge between people who I knew who had the kind of advantages that I had and those who didn't have those advantages. Did, well, did you ever feel guilty at all while you were with them, uh, you know, spending so much time with these kids who had it so rough? I did feel guilty. I felt that it was wrong for me to have so much and for them to have so little. I felt that it was very unfair. I think that's what really pushed me into philanthropy, pushed me into giving a, a significant amount of my own good fortune back mm -hmm. to causes, projects mm -hmm. that I believed mm -hmm. in. It's a practice that I've continued to this day. And I think that was in direct response to the inequity that I perceived and the, mm -hmm. the guilt that I felt about mm -hmm. what I had. Do you feel any guilt today about having so much privilege in this society? I'm aware of my or extreme do you carry good that? Is fortune. it a burden? Is it a burden ever that you carry with you? I'm, I'm conscious that I am extremely fortunate in the advantages I've been given. I think I found it more useful rather than carrying that around as guilt to, to try to translate that into action, into service. Mm -hmm. My father's favorite quote, is from the Bible, to whomsoever much has been given, of him shall much be required. And that has been more my guiding philosophy than, than sitting around somewhere feeling guilty about what I have, trying to take what I do have, the, the advantages I've been given, the opportunities I've been given, the resources I have available, and, and putting that to use on behalf of people and on behalf of the causes I believe in. What were the key values or lessons that you got from your family in terms of what carries you through now? And, and in uh, maintaining the structure of your personality and character? Hard work. My father used to say the only thing worse than a bum is a rich bum. I was brought up to believe that if I was going to amount to anything in life, I had to take what I had been given and work very, very hard to realize the benefits of that. I learned that lesson playing hockey. I was not a naturally gifted athlete, but I wanted to be a good goalie. I worked very, very hard to be a good goalie, and I realized some success and my share of failure, but it taught me some very, very important lessons about how you have to work hard if you're going to become anything, and I, those are values I try to translate for my children as well. Mm -hmm. The importance of integrity, the importance of doing what you believe in, uh, standing up for what you believe is right, not compromise in your principles or your ideals. Those are lessons I learned from my family.
-hmm. What about now, you, let's go to your race for the Senate. What happened, other than the fact that you lost, but I mean, what do you think, was it, was the campaign run badly? Uh, were there mistakes in the, in the campaign? Or was there a fundamental misjudgment, miscalculation when you entered it? Or how did, how did you get into it and how did it come undone? And what have you learned? Well, my campaign for the Senate was in many respects the best two years of my life. I learned more about myself, about the people of Minnesota, about politics, about life during those two years than I could have learned any other way. Certainly made plenty of mistakes, spent way too much money. Uh, unfortunately, that became the dominant issue in a way that I didn't foresee initially, and that became, which I regret, the characterization of my campaign and the way many people in Minnesota still see me. But anytime you, you take a big chance in life, uh, you're bound to make mistakes. Uh, this was the first time I'd ever conducted a political campaign. If I'd run for something uh, at a different level, I wouldn't have received the, the level of visibility of scrutiny, and those mistakes wouldn't have been so glaring. Why did you go right for the Senate? Why didn't you get some other, um, go for some other positions uh, at a lower level at state, local government, and, and sort of work your way up? Why did you go right for the Senate? Well, I worked for Fritz Mondale when he was in the Senate, and I saw how the Senate worked. I saw the, the kind of uh, seniority that people could acquire only over literally decades of service. I saw the, that the committee chairmen were Southern senators, primarily, who had been elected in their earlier mid-30s and had managed to be reelected and reached a position after 20, sometimes 30 years of service where they really could have the greatest influence over the decisions of the Senate and the flow of legislation. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm fortunate enough to be able to get elected at 35, manage to get reelected through good service to the people of Minnesota, then over a period of a couple of decades as a lifelong career in the Senate, I could ultimately get into that position. So it was a calculated strategy. Also, the reality was the, the opportunity it presented itself. No one else uh, in the DFL party was, was willing to take on Dave Dernberger, who was then a very popular and well-thought-of incumbent. And when I started in November of 1980, literally one week after the 1980 election, I didn't necessarily expect that I would end up being the nominee of the DFL party. I thought it was a great day to get around the state for a couple of years to, to get known politically. But when I started, I, I expected that somebody else would ultimately be the endorsed candidate of the DFL party. Well, as the way it developed, no one else came forward. I became the candidate, and I did the best I could. I, I did the best I could with what I knew at the time, and I, I learned an enormous amount from that experience. I don't regret it. I certainly would do it differently if I had to do it again. But it was an extraordinarily valuable learning experience for me. How would you have done it differently? Well, I would have spent quite a bit less money. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have allowed that to become the focus. I would have kept the focus uh, more on the issues, the differences between myself and my opponent. Is that possible to do? Oh, definitely. I think this is a state which lends itself to issues-oriented campaign. And in that respect, I felt very good about the campaign. I stood up for what I believed in. I stressed the issues throughout the campaign. By contemporary standards, it was a clean, positively run, above-board campaign. We had our differences. We had good debates. We talked about the issues. We talked about our different perspectives. And then the people of Minnesota made their decision, which I respect, which in many respects ultimately served my best interests as well, given everything that 
mm -hmm. ensued in my life. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy campaigning, pressing flesh? I did. I, I like campaigning. I'm, I'm not a, a naturally outgoing person. I'm much more introspective than a lot of politicians. But I like the people part of politics. I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy learning from people. I, I enjoy the opportunity to, to walk a farm and learn about farm prices or to sit in a living room and, and hear about people's real problems, real concerns. I'm not as good at some of the chit-chat part of politics, perhaps, the, the purely social aspects. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it gets down to pe real people and real problems, then I'm right there, and that to me is one of the most satisfying parts of political life. What do you think the, um, the Senate campaign cost you, not just for your political career and your personal life? Well, it cost me a great deal of money. It certainly damaged my marriage. I was basically gone for two years. I, I'm not going to say it cost me my marriage. I, I, I'm responsible for that, but it certainly was not helpful. And yet I also gained an enormous amount. I, mean, I learned so much about myself, so much about the state of Minnesota, so much about people that I certainly regret some of the aspects of the campaign, but I don't have any regret for the campaign itself or having undertaken it. It was an enormously valuable learning experience. I think you learn more in life from your mistakes and your failures than you learn from your successes. And mm -hmm. I, I've certainly found that to be true for my life, and I learned a great deal from my failure in running for the U.S. Senate. Did it cost you politically, though? I mean, were you then, you know, labeled as the, as the rich boy, and, and that's going to be something that's going to be hard to shake? I think there were mixed results politically. Certainly that characterization of the, mm -hmm. the wealthy, big-spending mm -hmm. politician is, is not helpful, and I think I've evolved and matured from that point. I hope people will come over time to see me differently. I think Minnesotans are generally broad-minded, understanding, and I think that I will ultimately be seen more in my present light, but that's certainly political baggage that I carry from that mm -hmm. campaign. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did the campaign stress your family then? Well, I, I was basically gone for two years. I saw very little of my family during that time, and I think that it certainly took its toll on my marriage, on that relationship. Did you not realize it during those two years? I didn't fully realize the consequences at that time, no. How soon after the, uh, the campaign were you divorced? Well, the campaign ended in November of 82, and I separated in the summer of 85, was finally divorced in the summer of 86. So obviously the campaign itself did not uh, destroy my marriage, but it was not helpful to it. Right, right. Was, it, was that a very difficult time then, right after the campaign? for the next few years while your marriage was, was coming undone? Actually, the, the years after the campaign were fairly satisfying, although quite demanding. I was able to get appointed to the job of Commissioner of Energy and Economic Development. Mm -hmm. Threw myself into that job. Had an opportunity to be involved in government and in public service, which is what I defined my career to be. And I was very excited to have the chance to, to get involved in real programs, provide real services to people put together economic development projects that were addressing the, the critical economic problems facing Minnesota at the time, and coming out of the 82 recession, the critical need for jobs in many areas of the state that were really had depressed economies. Mm -hmm. It was a very difficult and challenging job, but it was also very rewarding. And uh, that period of time actually was, was one that was quite satisfying. Had two wonderful sons, had a chance to, to watch them come into the world, be a father, see them develop. So I, I look back with those, on those years with great fondness and appreciation. 
What do you like most about fatherhood? What's the best part of my life? Uh, I, I like the joy of seeing my sons develop, being able to be a, a teacher, a model, a friend to them. Puts everything in perspective. I mean, it's really the, the transfer of life itself and the lessons of life from one generation to the next, and it puts life itself in, in its proper perspective. I mean, their, their, their problems, their concerns are, are so real to them uh, that it, it's, a, it's a very unselfish activity. It, it takes me out of myself and it, it, it says they come first. Their lives are more important to me than my own. What I can give to them matters more to me than what I can receive from them. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful lesson in life and, and how to give and how to, how to give of yourself. How did the problems with alcohol begin, and how did that resolve itself? Well, I'm the child of an alcoholic. My mother's an alcoholic, so that's been part of my family history. Um, the campaign those years uh, really provided a, a good block for me because I, I didn't drink at all, and I was so fully consumed in the campaign that it just wasn't an issue. And. Uh, I think it began, well, I can certainly see that the seeds existed prior to that time. It really began with the, the pain of the, the breakup of my marriage, the separation in the summer of 85, suddenly going from being in a home, which was very important to me, and surrounded by my, my wife, my children, and suddenly I was in this empty townhouse, totally alone, and, and filled with an enormous amount of pain. Um, what was the most difficult thing you had to learn about yourself during that time? Well, I spent my 40th birthday in the Betty Ford Center. It's, it's a terrible place to spend your 40th birthday, but it's a great place to be reborn. It really forced me to go back and, and right to the, the emotional foundation of my life. I mean, I, I felt like a complete failure. I mean, losing the, the Senate race was nothing compared with the feeling of, of failure and humiliation and defeat of saying, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. I mean, after 40 years of my life, this is what it's come to. I'm sitting here in this treatment center because, I, I'm, because my life is out of control. I, I mean, taking the first step is uh, really a, a very sobering experience. And that and, and some events subsequent to that, as I say, forced me in a way that now has proven to be enormously valuable to go back and rework the very foundations of my life, examine who I am, uh, what I believe in, the, the kind of emotional constructs that I grew up in, in an alcoholic family itself. I go back and, and rework all those uh, old de dependencies and, and uh, develop my faith again. I'd, I'd really lost that. I think that's one of the tragedies of the disease. You, you lose your, your spirituality. So I've had to, I've had the gift of being able to go back and, and rework my life in a very profound way through the last four years in ways that I, I think are going to hold me in good stead in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark Dayton, I want to thank you very, very much for being here with us tonight on Portrait. Thank you. Funding for this TPT archival podcast was made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.